0: Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, a devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but a photographer of over 30 years. If a picture tells a thousand words, then yes. I guess you can say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing, illustrating, and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the Gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill, shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishing. Each week we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the word of God. This week's essay is really a hymn. It is At the Cross by Isaac Watts. Every so often, Harvest House would intersperse or interject a hymn between the essays. And this was written by a very unique individual, Isaac Watts, born in 1674 and passed away in 1748. Now in March of 1702, Watts became a full nonconformist pastor. He was apparently an inspiring preacher. However, he also wrote educational books on geography, astronomy, grammar, and philosophy, which were widely used throughout the 18th century. He is best known, however, for his hymns. He is recognized as the father of English hymnody, or hymnody. He created some 750 hymns. His book, A Guide to Prayer, is published by the Trust. There is one hymn that I recognize, but never knew who wrote it. And the others I have heard of are, When I survey the wondrous cross, there is a land of pure delight, and the most famous of all of his hymns, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. With that, allow me to read the essay, which again is really a hymn, At the Cross. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm? as I, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Was it for crimes that I have done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. I love, Lord. I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. That ends the hymn at the cross, as composed by Isaac Watts and included in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. Now, the hymn is accompanied by a poem by John R. W. Stott, which says, The gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. The photo accompanying this hymn is the disposition. It is a horizontal image of the cross, which is rare for me as 95% of my cross images and most all of my photography in general are vertical, meaning in a portrait orientation versus landscape. Um, This landscaped image has a silhouetted cross, which appears on the lower left 40% of the frame. Under the left wing of the left side of the cross is a dramatic breaking through of the sun with the golden lights shining down in different directions so you could see individual rays uh, emanating down onto the landscape, the disposition. Now, it amazes me that a song like At the Cross, written over 300 years ago, before even the American Revolution, is still impacting lives with its inspiring words, to this day, it makes me think you never know the last in effect something you can do when sharing the gospel. At least not on this side of glory. Lord willing, this devotional regarding this episode that I'm verbalizing right now on Isaac Watts' hymn will bear fruit for years to come. We live in an amazing age with technology so accessible to create and to listen to podcasts like this, for example... Or my local radio program, which has the potential to reach approximately 200,000 people. But by sharing the content on a podcast, which was remarkably easy, has the potential to reach over 1 billion people. Really, it really does. It's just amazing. Uh, Just to think that someone in Korea or the Philippines or South Africa or Nigeria can be listening to this podcast right now boggles my mind. Speaking of South Africa, my family lineage comes through that nation. According to what I was told, my great-grandfather John Ingham was a band leader in Great Britain in the early 1900s. He was reportedly a music celebrity, and as the papers wrote about him, reporting on Ingham's heeding the call to become a missionary, um, his mission was to the mine workers of the Transvaal region. At some point on the mission field, John Ingham hooked up with John G. Lake, who is known as the Apostle to Africa. I have several books written about John G. Lake, where my great-grandfather is mentioned several times, detailing how they worked together on massive crusades around their entire region. To say that they were like Billy Graham's crusade would be a slight misnomer, as, in my opinion, Billy Graham's crusades were a continuation of the massive types that John G. Lake held a- across Africa. These crusades harvested countless souls for the kingdom. Moreover, the stories in those books are replete with testimonies of miraculous and divine appointments, breakthroughs of government opposition or competing religions. And while serving in the Transvaal, John Ingham married an American nurse, had four kids on the mission field. The youngest, my grandfather, was two years old when John Ingham died from the pandemic known as the Great Spanish Influenza. So in 1918... My great-grandma took the kids back home to her home area of Pennsylvania. My grandfather was a dual British-Afrikaner citizen until he became a U.S. citizen at 21. Lord willing, I can fulfill a bucket list to make a photographic visit to the Transvaal and churches in the region. Churches that may still be ripples from the events of John G. Lake and John Ingham. But let's begin this devotional by dissecting each of the hymn lines. Then as a commentary to bring it all together. A hymn, as I mentioned earlier, which is several hundred years old. Let's look into what the Holy Spirit inspired Isaac to compose. Let's start with the title, which for those of you who have heard about my journey capturing the Magi Cross collection, a journey that involves spending an incalculable amount of time at an actual 12-foot-high white wooden cross, on an isolated ridge, many times I would find myself back at the cross just to photograph it and sometimes to reflect and to interact with God about my new life as a widower and my new life in him. And as I mentioned in my essay, What the Cross Means to Me, in the book, What the Cross Means to Me, being at the cross is where we all, as followers of Christ, should keep as our epicenter, our center of gravity. Why? Why? Why not the virgin birth, or the resurrection, or the ascension? Well, while being an incarnation, Jesus had to live as one of us and overcome the temptations of this world in order to earn the right to become our ultimate sacrifice. And of course, the resurrection and the ascension would not have happened without his sacrificial death on the cross. It is our bridge over the chasm between us and God, or better phrased, from God to us, restoring the right relationship, lost, the fall of the Garden of Eden. So let's dig into the hymn. In the first line it says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? To gain insight into Isaac's thinking, I had to consult our friends, Miriam and Webster, who defines alas as a word used to express unhappiness, pity, or concern. Hmm, I am glad that I looked it up, because that line makes more sense in the light of Watt's question, Isaac asked, Did my Savior bleed? Well, some may respond with, Of course he did. He bled a lot. Jesus had just been whipped 39 times with a metal-laced whip, which ripped skin and meat from his more than just his back. They whipped his legs as well. And it would wrap around to the front. I can't imagine. He had portions of his beard pulled out, a crown of thorns pressed into his head, had spikes hammered through his wrists and feet, and then had a spear driven through his side. So yes, it is safe to assume that Jesus bled a lot. But note, Isaac did not refer to him as Jesus, but as his savior, the one who saved Isaac's soul through all that I just mentioned, plus the it is finished moment. So in reflection, Isaac is not asking if Jesus bled, but that he is sad that Jesus had to bleed and to bleed so much to become Isaac's savior. The second line of the first stanza asks, "And did my sovereign die?" And here, sovereign is spelled S-O-V apostrophe R-E-I-G-N. So you could pronounce it "sov reign." Again, at first glance, it seems he is asking if Jesus died. But in light of what we learned in the first line, when he asked if Jesus bled, we can deduce that what he is really asking is, why? Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. In every way, the primacy is his. So why would the prince of the kingdom of heaven, or as Pilate had inscribed on the cross sign, the king of the Jews, or as referred to in the epistles as the king of kings, have to die like this? The third line of stanza one asks, would he devote that sacred head Again, we consult Merriam and Webster who, says, who say that devote means to give over to a cause or commit by a solemn act with a solemn meaning, a religious sanction, as in a solemn oath. And sacred being defined as holy or divine. And head as the president of a company or the coach or the owner of a sports team. And very similar to how the Catholic religion views the Pope as head of the church. So, if we rephrase we this line, we could say, The head of our faith, completely holy, committed to the ultimate sacrifice by giving himself away. I get the sense that he sees Jesus as high priest and king giving himself up. The fourth line of stanza one asks, For such a worm as I? Now that is interesting. Why the metaphor of a worm? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the reference in Isaiah forty-one fourteen when God called Jacob a worm. Worms are small, worms are lowly, and worms have no eyes. Their existence is one of consistently digging, eating, and casting, over and over again. But I am intrigued about the potential connection to the name and life of Jacob. His name means supplanter, defined as someone or something taking the place of another as through force. Scheming, strategy, or craftiness. His stealing of the birthright and blessing from his brother caused him to live as a fugitive for more than two decades. Maybe Isaac was simply commenting that we are all supplanters to a point, looking out for our own interest, our own need, at all costs, irregardless of God's will, and yes, in need of forgiveness. Then comes the chorus. In line one, I resonate with At the Cross at the cross. I relate with it because during the time I shot the Magi cross, I'd often end up back at that white cross over and over again. So much so that many years later, I still imagine myself at the cross in my meditative prayer times and probably will for the rest of my life. And these dark times we live in, maybe it's a good practice to try to imagine yourself at the cross, talking to Jesus like the good thief, or at least keep the cross of Christ a core part of your spiritual journey. Why? Because in line two of the course, Isaac tells us that it was at the cross that he first saw the light. Funny thing, the phenomena of darkness, is that it amplifies the light. I understand that is counterintuitive, but the darker the space, the brighter the smallest of light appears. Jesus was the light of the world and yet he allowed himself, apparently, to be extinguished. In hindsight, we know that Jesus went to the depths of Hades to reclaim the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Oh, how bright the Spirit of Christ must have appeared to that satanic dimension. But bringing it back to what Isaac was getting at, I'm reminded of what the novelist Edith Wharton wrote. There are two ways of spreading light, to be the candle or the mirror that reflects it, like the moon reflecting the sun. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. In our relationship with Jesus, he is the candle. We are the mirror that reflects his light to the world. The deeper the darkness, the brighter we shine to those we interact with. And in the third chorus, the third line in the chorus, Isaac shares that the burden of my heart rolled away. Burdens can be defined and originate in so many ways. It can be like things done to us, like when I was neglected and physically abused to the point of being hospitalized, or when young Annie Chapman was sexually assaulted by the farmhand, or my friend Steve, whose psyche was scarred for the rest of his life by the deep emotional abuse of his stepfather. Or it could be the burdens we bring on ourselves, Things we have done wrong, and the guilt eats us up. Or maybe something like a wrong, or wrongs, plural, we have done to someone else. And the regret robs us of our peace. At the cross, through the sacrifice Jesus made, it provided Jesus more than just the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Jesus also had the ability to wash away the burdens of our guilt, shame, and deep hurt. It is a good thing Jesus does windows. Because when the thick film of guilt and hurt is cleaned off of the mirror of our soul, Jesus is able to see us more clearly and we are able to reflect the full spectrum of light of Jesus. And then we see the effect of this to Isaac in the fourth and final line of the chorus. And now I am happy all the day. Ah, joy. One of the immediate and long-lasting benefits of having your burdens lifted. One can see a Great example of this on Christmas Day for Ebenezer Scrooge when he awakes and realizes he has a second chance. A second chance to right past wrongs and to change the future from what it might have been. It is not an intellectual chance, but a life-changing paradigm shift that changes the perspective of Ebenezer's life and any of our lives and how we interact with those around us. My mom, a rage-filled prisoner to nicotine and heroin, had a 180 degree change and was filled with an undeniable overflowing and infectious joy. Did it mean that her life and her new existence was immediately full of roses and rainbows? No. It was a tough couple of decades as a single mom. It was full of tough challenges, disappointments, and trials. But she always saw past them, never dwelling on them and overcoming them all joyfully. When you keep your focus on God, the size of your hurdles that are in the way shrinks in size as we pass over, under, or around them. To be clear, some like Erwin Lutzer and John Michael Talbot have a gap between having their sins forgiven and when they have a personal tangible event that floods their soul with joy. And some have a more, how do I say this? I'll give myself as an example. I don't have a bubbly joy like my mom, but through all things I've been through, I have a happy, grateful, and peaceful disposition all day, every day, knowing that God is involved in the affairs of my life. Now, when we look at the first line of stanza two, was it for crimes that I have done? I think the answer is yes. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I am reminded of the good thief who said to the bad thief, we deserve our punishment because of the crimes we committed. But this man is innocent. Then he turns to Jesus and asks Jesus, Remember me this day in paradise. We should all have this humility, daily asking Jesus to have mercy on us. The second line seems to be a continuation of the first, as in, Was it for crimes that I have done that he groaned upon the tree? Again, from our biblical literacy, the answer is yes. The Bible says that Jesus took all the hurt, all the shame, and all the sin all the heinous crimes committed onto himself. The one groaning that always intrigues me. When Jesus groans, I thirst. This could be the subject of one's meditation. Or, which has been done, a whole book could be written on those two words. More than that, one could make a mission statement like Mother Teresa did, whose entire life of service was underpinned by her contemplation of what Jesus was saying when Jesus groaned, I thirst. He was thirsting for you to be reconciled with God. The next lines, three and four of stanza two, are also best combined. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and a love beyond degree. A major leg of the tripod-like plan of salvation is that God became man on this plane. And since Jesus lives with us and among us, he has immense pity for us. He understands the plight, the hunger, the tiredness, the pain, the grief of loss, and the temptations we face. And he did it knowing that the plan was not just the impending crucifixion, but that he'd be a bridge for joy and eternal life out of death and despair. Moreover, God, who sacrificed his own son to provide a path of reconciliation and salvation, loved us so much that he gives us the choice to love him back or not. That is immeasurable love. I've known people, including my late wife, who even though she was touched by a much older family member for a long period of time, instead of hating him, she pitied him, loved him, and forgave him. That's hard for some people to understand, but her happiness was in the Lord, and it helped see past the current situation to a hope that that individual, too, could be forgiven. We could look at the South Carolina shooting in that church where a young, black, a young white man shot a number of black Bible study studiers, including their pastor. Their survivors unanimously forgave the troubled young man, praying for his salvation. I feel it is a choice, like like God giving us the choice to love him or not. Since we can receive the pity, grace, and love God provides us, we then ought to share it through us to others in our life. Skipping past a repeat of the chorus, we find ourselves at stanza number three, and again, we need to combine lines 1 and 2, as well as 3 and 4. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in? Hmm, I had to dwell on that one for a bit. So allow me to add 3 and 4 for some more context. When Christ, the mighty maker, died, for man, the creature, sin. Ah, I see it now, when I combine all four at once. As I alluded to earlier in this devotional, when Jesus, who was with Father God from before and during the creation of the world, gave himself up as compensation for the debt of humankind's sin, then descending into Hades, then the light of the world subjected himself into the darkness of darkness. For three days, the Son of God, our morning star, was hidden in the darkness of Lucifer's realm. And then, when the darkness of darkness surrounded him, the light was amplified with exponential amplification, While all of creation waited for the Son to consummate his Father's will, emerging through the full electromagnetic spectrum of resurrection light, bringing forth the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Hallelujah. Which takes us past another course to the fourth stanza. And I think we're at the point where grouping the stanzas makes sense. This is because line one and two states, Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Hmm. This is, to me, not just the heart of the gospel, but also the backstory of the human race on earth. It is a connection between the first Adam and the second Adam, meaning after Adam agreed with Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, he not only knew he was naked, but he also felt guilt for the first time. And the shame, now knowing what he had done, drove him to hide from God. Isaac is saying that with the appearance of the cross of Christ and the power of his sacrifice, the right relationship with God has been restored. Line three of the fourth stanza elaborates on the effect of the cross appearing in that it dissolves my heart in thankfulness. To me, this means a gratitude so great that it completely humbles you. So many have an overinflated sense of identity, puffed up pride, and an exaggerated ego But for those of us who have had a personal experience at the cross, the focus turns from an internal vanity onto the Savior of our soul. Line 4 then says, And melt mine eyes to tears. As a continuation of lines 2 and 3, the emotion of being truly forgiven and deeply healed is hard to contain. Very hard. I've cried from time to time when being blessed by God, but one that I still can't shake is when I view a certain video, a video I made with my buddy John, a slideshow of many crosses in the Magi Cross Collection, put to the song, I Wonder as I Wander" by Barbara Streisand. I cannot help but cry each time. Which takes us to the final stanza, five, which states, but drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. In this phrase, Isaac is confessing his realization that there is absolutely nothing he can ever do to pay back what he has received. It is a good realization as it leads Isaac to state, Here, Lord, I give myself away. This all that I can do. Meaning that's all I can do. And Isaac is 100% correct. All we can do is give him 100% of our lives. This, I believe, is the crux of the gospel. As I shared in episode 10, the message of the cross. I had an epiphany that the message of the cross is to share the message of the cross. And in this say, I have a related epiphany, which is, if Jesus gave his all for me and us, then I should give all I have to him and all others in my circle of influence, in the circle of people I come into contact with, either long-term, like family, friends, co-workers, and those that divine appointments allow us to meet. The Bible says the Lord wishes that none should perish, so everyone we interface with is one of them. Our words and actions inspired by love for them Allowing the love of Jesus to flow through us may seem inconsequential. However, every seed in the ground is benefited by the daily nourishment of water for its roots. Our interactions, if we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us to them, then it might be the only watering of the seed of their salvation planted by another long ago. So what do you say, my brothers and sisters, Has this hymn given you a fresh perspective on your salvation and commission to share it with others? I pray that it does, and that much fruit will be brought forth by your new awareness and your words and your actions of God's love through you. And if you have not yet accepted Christ as your Savior, I encourage you to repent and choose to believe and live the good news of the gospel. If so, close your eyes, picture Jesus in front of you, Tell him you want to be saved from your life of sin and hurt to a life of forgiveness, healing, and peace. Ask Jesus to come into the locked room of your heart today. Then seek out a mature Christian in a local church to walk alongside you and nourish you in this new life in Christ today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to "What the Cross Means to Me" devotional program, heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this essay's image, the dispensation, along with cross parations and other verse parations, then check out Magic Cross on Instagram. If you'd like to see the cross video that I mentioned, then search for Magic Cross on YouTube. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magic Cross products, here other Cross podcasts or read further meditative musings on the Cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com that is m-a-j-i-c-r-o-s-s dot com